Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm 57. Right. Going to be 57 this year. I've started rounding up. It used to take off, but now I want to seem older so that people will say, oh, you look great. <laughs> stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is Stage Door Johnny. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life. And life in the theatre. I'm Jonathan Cake. I'm an actor, normally. But I've had the tremendous good fortune to cross paths with and talk to some of the finest theatre artists in the UK and America in the last 30 years. And I didn't want those conversations to just drift off into the air. So here I am, gathering them on this podcast in the hope that you might find my guests as fascinating and inspiring as I do. And look, there are few directors in the English-speaking world more fascinating than Phyllida Lloyd, CBE. That's not her full name. CBE is just her title. She's a commander of the British Empire, which actually seems rather a sort of stuffy relic of a forgotten England. CBE, commander of the British Empire. Even that word empire is slightly wince-inducing in this age of megalomaniacal foreign adventuring. And especially as Phyllida is probably the most radical and forward-thinking of maybe all the directors I've interviewed for this podcast. There's nothing stuffy or of a bygone age about her. She's famous for directing Mamma Mia on stage and screen, the ABBA musical. You know it. I mean, it's impossible not to be aware of the cultural behemoth that is Mamma Mia. She directed The Iron Lady, which won Meryl Streep the Oscar for playing Margaret Thatcher, but she's a powerhouse theatre and opera director too. Her last outing in the theatre was a verbatim play taken from the exact testimony of the survivors of the horrific Grenfell fire in West London in 2017. Uh, We talk about it in some detail, and listening to her talk about it is absolutely inspirational. If you're in any doubt about what theatre or storytelling in general can do to activate the public consciousness about events like this, it's really fascinating talking about that. And a long way from the juggernaut that is Mamma Mia, as we discuss. Uh, But she's also really well known for directing a trilogy of all female Shakespeare's from 2012 to 2017. She's a shit kicker. She's a dust knocker. She's an innovator. She's She's a radical. She's got this wonderful radical spirit. And as you'll hear in our chat, which was, by the way, so juicy that I had to cut it into two parts. Do join me for the second. She's an absolute relentless questioner of the status quo. There's no excuse for being dull. (laughs) as she says in this interview, and she never is. 
All right, Philida and I talked in January this year, 2024, the morning after a hurricane, actually, had ripped through the south coast of England, where we both live, and brought down a lot of trees. So she was a good person to survey the wreckage of the Sussex countryside with and the landscape of theatre. Members of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. Mr Cake and Ms Lloyd to the stage, please. This is your beginner's. Can I ask you about... Lawnside School. You went to, I think, a school called Lawnside in Malvern? Um, so I had grown up in a little village in Somerset. Can I say the name of the village? Try. Nempnet Thrubwell. Really good. Very few I've just people. been saying it. You must have been working on that no, in the car. It's sort of strange earworm. I can't get out of my... It's like sort of, you know, a great line of poetry. Nempnet Thrubwell is just a f- sound I want to make. Um... It was very hard to find. There was one birthday party I had when I was a child where nobody came. <laughs> the lanes I... were so... It was like being caught in caught in a maze or a right. labyrinth. And you, when you got in the lanes, the banks were so high, you couldn't see where you were in relation to anything else. Like a maze. Yeah, yeah and there were no signposts or anything. Um, oh, anyway... How old were you when you were standing there waiting for the guests? I was six. Oh. I just remember, I mean, probably there wasn't a huge guest list, but what there was didn't, <laughs> didn't show. Um, anyway, I was sent away to school, boarding school, yes, in in Malvern, a tiny school. How old were you? I was uh, 11 mm. and it had about 120 pupils. The headmistress made it really clear to my parents that if they wanted me to be a high-flying academic they should send me somewhere else. But if they wanted me to be able to dance the Charleston and make a damn good speech to open a fate, this was the right place. And God, I punished them for years afterwards that they said, oh, this sounds ideal. Um, Why do you think they did? Were they artistic? Not really, no. My father had definitely been a keen actor as a student, had played, you know, Viola at Cambridge and loved the classics. My mother was mad about the theatre, but they they had no professional involvement. My mother was you know, a massive theatre fan. But when I lambasted them about this later, they, they said that they'd met some really nice people with these incredibly nice children. And they thought, I want ours to, to be like that. And that was the basis on which they sent me there. And so the founding headmistress... She had been best friends with Elgar and George Bernard Shaw. Right. And they were supposed to have played duets on our school piano. I think Elgar wrote our school march. We were steeped in the Malvern Festival and we had to write plays. We had to learn to dance. We had to rush round the lawn doing Isadora Duncan, dancing with, you know, laurel leaves stuck in our bras. That sounds amazing. It was, I loved it. Was it quite left leaning? Was it quite progressive? No, Just but it was bohemian. very open. They took us to masses of things. Mm. So in that way, we went to not just the Malvern Light Operatic Society, but we went to Ballet Rombert. I remember seeing sort of naked contemporary dancers when I was maybe 12 or 13. Mm. We, we went to loads of stuff and we mm. went to Stratford and our parents used to get these, sent these bills with tickets kind of stapled to them. My mother remember going, you've been to Richard II twice. And I was like, yeah, but the thing was that 
there's Ian Richardson and Richard Pascoe both playing Richard yes. and there was a spare place on the coach when the second lot went and they asked me if I wanted to go again. <sighs> so my mother was like, this is two tickets? What the hell? <laughs> so fantastic. <laughs> and not all my friends got the bug like me. It wasn't like we all right. came out wanting to... Most of them got married at sort of 21. Right. I think I was already mad about theatre when I went there. And your parents could see that? Yes. For my, I don't know what birthday it was, I'm going to say 12th, I got a, an old-fashioned, I don't know how you pronounce it, Leichner makeup, huge makeup box. And I sat following a kind of chart, turning myself into King Lear, painting this glue on my face with a huge beard and all the lines... <laughs> putting on all the different colours and... Like Donald Wolfit in The Dresser. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you said something very wonderful, which really stuck with me afterwards, about what a sort of, um, uh, you know, how everything seemed possible for all the girls at that school. There was a sort of sense that, artistically anyway, you were incredibly empowered. You're doing all these play readings and these dances and music. And that... You felt that when you came out into the real world of making your way in the arts, that it wasn't like that. I mean, I'd wanted to go to drama school because not many people at school were really talking about university. Right. Um, people were going off to finishing schools and, you know, secretarial thing. I was hell-bent on becoming an actor by the time I left. I had this amazing two amazing drama teachers, one of whom was called Gillian Mayle. She was Rick Mayle's mum. Oh, wow. And she was a big influence. And she actually brought, you know, I played Grusha in the Caucasian Chalk Circle. Oh. So in terms of left-leaning, you know, influences, by the time I was 18, I was really like, this is where I'm going. And my mother was panicked and thought, i got to have to throw a log in the road of this vehicle that's hurtling towards disaster you think it's going to drama school and said you know what about what about because the degrees in drama had just been invented quite recently then um what about doing a a drama degree because then you'll have something to fall back on and then perhaps you can always do a postgraduate one-year course in drama school if you you know still crazy about it and of course it's the best thing that ever happened because not because a drama degree was in any way a qualification for anything but it was a chance to just um watch the process of people studying acting and my own relationship to it because we did a lot of practical work as well as academic work and just go I'm not cut out for this I could see people who I thought were a lot more better than me and also much more robust mm. psychologically. Mm. I thought, I don't know how I'm going to deal with the rejection of this profession. And I started directing. How do you feel about talking about yourself? A little bit nervous. Do you? Gosh. I do, actually. I mean, A, because I'm fearful of the public scrutiny of it, and B, because I suppose it's being forced to update one's life huh. in a way that when you're living it you 
you can be excused, you know, especially if I greet you with this kind of so much going on. You think, yes, there's so much doing that, that actually there isn't really the permission to sit down and go, oh, gosh, this is what the whole thing has amounted to. So I I feel a little bit nervous. Oh, I I mean, I'll get through. I'll get over it quickly. Of course. I'll get over it. I feel a bit nervous, too, because we don't know each other terribly well. Never worked together. And... Uh, apart from one lovely summer day in this very house, we haven't really spent much time. Over no. the, I think I've, we've sort of, I've sort of gravitated round and past you. I've seen tons of your shows, and I've always had people in them who I've known, and you've been sort of around. But it's well, a funny thing. To mm, sort of... I have such vivid memory of you in a pond, howling. <laughs> In a pond? I don't know what you mean. Um, on stage. <laughs> I thought you might have just passed me in a pond. In Medea. Somewhere. Um, in this, that... was it, this was in Deborah Warner's production of Medea, yes. that's right, in, God knows, sometime, long time ago, 2001, I think we started yes. it. And then we did it in 2003, I think. Yes. With Fiona Shaw as Medea and yes. as Jason. And yes, that extraordinary production. So I re- remember you vividly. What do you, what do you remember of that show? What I remember of it is the glass, the glass, the children's hands on the glass, the blood on the glass, her carrying both the children on at the end. You know, you that sort of enter King Lear with Cordelia dead in his arms, and you often they find a way round that where King Lear doesn't actually enter with Cordelia dead in his arms; he does something else because he doesn't want to do it eight times a week or he's too, you know, fragile. But in this case, I remember these quite big children mm. and her having both of them, one under each arm as she came in at the end. And well, I also that's... remember her being very funny. I remember the audience. Did you do it in Dublin? I didn't do the production. It started okay. in Dublin at that's the Abbey I and I didn't it, do yeah. it there. I remember it literally bringing the house down, her first speech to the chorus, and I thinking, yeah, only she would ride into this in this way. I remember it as about 20 minutes in the pond, though it can't have been that long. (laughs) Didn't you all get ear infections? (laughs) I think the pond got a bit brackish. (laughs) Yeah. I remember the pond seemed to go on forever, and I remember it being the hardest thing I I think I, I could ever imagine doing screaming at Fiona Shaw over the slaughtered corpses of our children who lay there, poor things. I mean, you know, talk about a different time. This was in the early aughts, but but I wonder how everybody would approach that now. I did notice that in Dominic Cook's production with Sophie Okonedo and Ben Daniels, which I went to see, the kids didn't, am I right in saying they didn't come out dead and were asked to be dead? They, I think they stayed down yeah, below. Yeah, that's didn't right. They? That's right. Yes, a lot of things are different now. A lot of things I look back on some periods and certain processes of work and think, I don't know how we would have navigated that now. Mm. Uh, whether we would ever have got to where we got to, because mm. I'm not sure that it's it's now the right thing mm. to um, take such risks in the rehearsal room. Mm. You were just in the rehearsal room doing an incredibly sensitised production. I was going to talk about this later, but I think we we might be there now. You were just co-directing with Anthony Simpson-Pike. Simpson Pike. Thank you. 
a verbatim play account of the survivors of the Grenfell disaster. For anybody who doesn't know what that is, I'm probably going to praise it badly because I was living out of the country when it was happening. But tell me if I'm getting this wrong. A tower block in the borough of Kensington was ha- had been talked about for many years as being inadequately clad or dangerously clad in a substance that was potentially flammable. Yes, it, it hadn't ahead. been talked about as being dangerously clad because nobody actually, except the people who made the cladding, had that apprehension. Oh. Um, what happened was that the tower was refurbished in a very inexpert, that's an understatement, way on every level. Um, the residents were very aware that their windows didn't fit, that their new doors, that the mechanism for self-closing, the mechanisms were kind of dropping off the doors, that they were living in this complete tinderbox. Mm. What they didn't know was that the cladding was flammable. Okay. They knew that the cladding had been put on to insulate the more wealthy residents of Kensington and Chelsea from having to look at this brutalist building from right. the 70s. But they didn't realise that the cladding um, was not only illegal, but had was sort of two very thin bits of aluminium with petrol between them. Um, so the, it was a confluence of sort of frauds on the market and complete bodget and scarper workmanship that led to the catastrophe. Which was that the fire started and 72 people were killed. Now, you made this piece of theatre about that event based on the exact testimony, the, the, the words, the verbatim words of the survivors. Yes, it was the actors represented this group of residents, surviving residents, and they also reconstructed extracts from the public inquiry right. that showed you the failings of Kensington Chelsea, the tenant management organization, and the corporate corruption that pertained. Right. And then the, and then the cover-ups, as we've been seeing in British public life, notably with the Post Office Horizon scandal, which is a huge inflammatory subject right now in, in British political discourse, because there's been an ITV drama that has done what no sort of public inquiry or, or, or editorial in a newspaper can do, showing you the human side of the consequences of this terrible story. But it's but it was the sort of lack of accountability afterwards and the failure of justice too, which is, you know, apart from the terrible original tragedy that's that's still going on. The facts are that a public inquiry ran for four years and is about to this year publish its findings right. sometime probably around the seventh year anniversary of the fire. And on some level, the public inquiry has delayed the possibility of any um, charges being laid. Uh But as soon as the report is published, the Crown Prosecution Service will decide on the basis of it who they can charge and whether they can, whether they have cases. But the facts are that these several of these corporations incriminated themselves quite openly in the inquiry. So everything we showed on stage, which did produce gasps from the audience, as well as, 
you know, a lot of grief from other survivors and wider community who came to witness it. It was quite an overwhelming room to be part of mm. listening to this because those who, those of us who thought we knew quite a lot about it, read the papers, etc. But it was jaw-dropping, the, the facts you were hearing. I think everybody, even those who were represented in the play, found it quite extraordinary watching it because they didn't know their neighbours, next-door neighbours' story of how they got out explicitly. You know, wow. people knew lots and lots about it, but not all of it. And obviously we didn't know all of it either, nor were able to show it. But the bereaved and survivors have been fighting for justice for seven years and they are exhausted and they're desperate for a wider public to take the burden off their shoulders and help them call out in a way that exactly the post office scandal is an absolute parallel yeah. of the way in which you sort of feel how much can a play or a piece of television actually do, how much change can you can you expect from it. We're about to take it to New York. You, know, you sort of think, well, how can that help? But often I think echoes from there really reverberate Definitely. back here. It's about my experience in the past. So we're also hoping that the BBC might broadcast our version of this, the digitised version of, of the stage play. I'm very ambivalent about theatre on screen, hugely ambivalent, mm. mainly on the actor's behalf. But in this case, I feel that the facts need to be heard. Mm. So, yeah, we're, we're hoping that, that a wider public will get to see it and get behind, you know, the Crown Prosecution Service and, and lobby you know, and, and when you speak to the bereaved and survivors, at the end of our stage show, we show a 15-minute film in which the actual residents who are being represented in the play speak to the audience. And we ask them each, what does justice look like for you? Mm. And it's very different for every single person. One person might say, justice is change within systems. Another person, unless somebody goes to jail, there is no justice. It's very interesting. You talk about the limitations of what potential limitations of what a, a TV show or a play can do. But I noticed that this issue is in the paper again today because galvanized by the success of the increase of public consciousness that the ITV drama, television drama about the post office scandal has caused, has meant that actually. I think rather thrillingly, people are looking back towards stories, towards representations of the human element on stage or on screen, as a way of connecting us with these massive public events yeah, and their repercussions. Of the yeah. yeah. And that must make you feel, or does it make you remind you of its ultimate limitations, or does it make you feel more encouraged about well, it, how effective it can be? Yes, no, of course it does. And it makes me, I think I'd been a little nervous of verbatim, you know, in a way that people who make documentaries for a living often um, go on to make drama because they mm. can't quite get the story to quite go where they want it to go. Right. So in the end, you have to make it up. I have done verbatim before. It's, it's not something I've made my, the meat and drink of my work, but I'm now very inspired 
to take another subject, which and Gillian Slover and I are looking at, because she's the person who compiled this yeah. and started work right after the fire. And she is an expert in this territory. We're, we're looking, yes, at another subject. What you described about the sheer theatrical force, which felt like it, when you were describing it, felt like it can go beyond that room. Of course, that's what we all ultimately hope that a play can do anyway. But it sounds like it really, really did in this case. must be terribly addictive. Well, I think there was something about not allowing the, the stage performance to be... We didn't allow people to leave their thoughts in the theatre. Ah. There was no end to it. Um, the audience moved out of the theatre and were given an offer to help make something physical outside the theatre, which was a kind of garden of remembrance and protest. They were given an opportunity to literally, they were handed a baton as they went out, or they weren't handed it. We were in great debate as to whether it was wrong to impose this baton on them, mm. or they could choose to pick up these huge green hearts, which were had become a symbol of Grenfell and Gren the lost and and the protest, the kind of fight for justice. And they took them and they built this giant garden outside. And then there was a kind of commemorative moment. So they'd left, they'd taken all their grief, fury, and what the hell do we do about this already outside. And they were all talking about it, you know, after the actors then came out and spoke to them for a moment. And it's sort of, you could feel people going off to the underground going, what the hell, you know, how do we and who do we talk to? And Gosh. But it was very much about building a community in the theatre. I did something we'd never done before, which was ask the audience to introduce themselves to each other and chat. We struggled to stop them, actually, once we'd got going with it. I think people were had come in with so much apprehension about what is this going to be like? Is it going to be... And the people would say, I'm not sure I can face it. It sounds a bit grim. And you thought, okay, we need to get really beyond this. You're going to learn something. You're going to enjoy some of this as well. And we wanted to create a really spellbinding piece of theatre rather than anything that was just um, sombre and just bleak. So you you entered into this community at the beginning. You knew all your neighbours You'd found out who your neighbours, what they did, where they come from. And so as the evening began to grip and the grief started to overwhelm people who'd lived through it, you could feel those who hadn't lived through it were were sort of almost like, okay, I've got these people either side of me. You know, people spoke about putting an arm around someone, just chatting to them in the interval. And yes, they became a little community for that moment which I guess is what you hope for in the theatre and is very hard to do in a lot of the theatre spaces that we built in the 19th and early 20th century because the play's up there Mm. and we're down here. Mm. And in this case, as far as I'm concerned now, for me, you know, the play isn't Mm. the thing. We're sort of, we've got to be the thing now. I mean, I'm not saying there isn't, you know, of course there's a place. I've got very lucky to have couple of shows that I've productions I've made been part of that are in just those theatres and they are the right theatres for them but 
for the kind of thing you're talking about in terms of activating an audience, making them feel they want to be part of a discussion. I, th- I think we need to be in different spaces to mm. hear the stories. Do you think that's a way forward for theatre? To change or modulate that relationship between actor and audience? Do we think we need to do that more? I do, yes. I think that it's very easy to go into a proscenium arch theatre to feel all kinds of things and get out alive, as it were, without anybody (sighs) seeing that it happened to you. Your tears will go unseen. Your laughter will be contributed, but nobody will know it was you. Whereas in this particular theatre space where we were in the round, you could look across, you could see who yeah. was, whose jaws were dropping, who was grieving, who was laughing. It's like a people's parliament, a forum. But as I say, I'm not saying all proscenium March theatres should be bulldozed to the ground. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that when we build theatres now, we have to make sure we can... They have to be able to put them in this configuration for certain for certain work. That business of taking play or the resonance of the play back out onto the street with them afterwards to, f- to feel like it had a relationship to the outside world. It wasn't just siloed in the, in the little cultural space. I was so struck by that idea. Is there a way that theatre has a future where that's more activated? So it doesn't feel quite so hermetically sealed from, from the outside? Does it only depend on something as, as resonant and as poignant as, and public as Grenfell? I don't know. I think since the pandemic, I've become more involved with my local theatres, which are in West London, more present in the audience in, in both those local theatres in a way that before I always thought theatre was something you travel to go to. Hmm. Go to. And... In the case of one of the theatres, it's programming a lot of stuff about the audience. And it's thrilling to be in an audience where the stuff is about them. It's about, and about the hood. You know, it's about the neighbourhood, mm. the geography, you know, references to streets around here. And I guess I do see that as a future. I just think what's devastating at the moment is how expensive everything is. Theatres that had become more like community centres in the daytime, because God knows, do we want a theatre that's only open at night? Um, Theatres that are now not able to have their doors open in the day Mm. for people to drop in, come Mm. and have coffee, chats, you know, because the energy bills are so huge. Mm. And so what do we do? You feel like the theatre the church, the, the theatre is the should and is should be. It's it somehow we've got to pool our pool our resources. Yes. If there are public spaces that people would like to go to, yeah. there might be a way of making that under one yeah. roof. Yeah. So you don't have yeah. a dozen different yeah. buildings that are all unable the, to open during the day. There's a theatre in Chester, which a friend of mine was running for a while, in fact reopened it in this in this way, where the theatre, the cinema, the library, you know, the excellent restaurant and cafe, mm, mm. the children's crash, all of this is, mm. is one thing. Mm. And that seemed to me excellent. Mm. Totally. I was going to say that all this seems like a long way from Mamma Mia, 
I mean, I know you've done dozens of plays and operas before that, but Mamma Mia was such a global hit. When we're talking about sort of the modulating of the relationship, the traditional relationship between audience over there and stage over here, when I think about Mamma Mia, actually, it did break down those barriers in quite a noticeable way. Yes, because a large number of the musicals that were in the West End at the time we talked at first about making it were nostalgic. Right. Um, there was a lot of 19th century stuff. Right. There was very little, very little of the audience on the stage right. in a musical. I mean, there had been Blood Brothers, but even that, it was very specifically culturally located. It didn't give opportunity for, like, all of the audience could be cast in any of these roles on stage. Right. So we were really cognizant of that when we made it, that, and definitely when we were casting it, because there was a certain actor who was expected to be sort of availability checked for West End musicals. Right. And a certain body shape that yes. you expected, like in a woman in a West End musical. Right. And when we started breaking that down and going, look, he doesn't actually have to sing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That well, or look, anybody, you know, all shapes and sizes welcome. It was, it was quite interesting. And when we went to a Broadway, that was even harder to break that right. assumption that you had to look like a kind of leggy greyhound to be, especially as a woman, to be on stage in a Broadway musical. Mm. There was no way you could break that mould. So, yeah, it was interesting and how you, it was such a hit, I think, because partly, obviously, it was every song was a hit, but, but there was something about the audience seeing themselves. Is it harder for you to commit to a play or indeed a movie now when you've had an experience like Grenfell or when you've had an experience like the all-female Shakespeare trilogy that you famously did, Julius Caesar, Henry IV and The Tempest, which took an all-female cast and worked with a prison charity called Clean Break and set, set the plays in a women's prison. And that was extraordinarily impactful and felt like it had a potency that went beyond, how to say it, the sort of traditional putting on of a play for the sake of a play. It felt like, it feels like you have gone from this great, big, extraordinary global success to trying to articulate things that really matter to you. Is it hard to go back to something? Could you ever do something now that didn't really connect to you the way those do? No, but I think I always was looking for the thing that connected but right. I, with me, whether it was trying to find great stories for women that hadn't been told or trying to bring together a more diverse crew of actors in the early days, you know, with many car crashes that occurred in, in trying to 
create these worlds in different repertory theatres and around the place. But the whole thing, because of my not having felt I was the right person to run a theatre, because I feel that the job of directing a play and the job of running a theatre is entirely different. (laughs) And I feel very, very possessed with a passion about one and find the other side of it quite, um, you know, I'm now running a company um, with my partner and I'm very, I know that I'm, I struggle with spreadsheets. Mm. And I know you can say, well, you can run a theatre and have someone else doing the spreadsheets, but ultimately you can't. You've got to be able to get excited about about policy planning, how much does one thing cost against another. I'm not saying I've been ignorant of that. You spend a lot of time, especially if you're working opera, you have to be so skillful about how you manage the resources that that you're given. I've had the opportunity to run theatres. I've never had, perhaps you'd say, the courage to do it, but I've never felt I was equipped to do it. And so it meant that for many years, my attempts to explore some of these sort of political goals have been quite piecemeal. So I would run from one company because I couldn't get a 50-50 gender split in in the company in a company seat cast company season thing and run somewhere else where I thought I could build, you know, a more diverse cast of actors. We're talking right back in the nineties and end up with it being very much a one-off thing that had no context. And so it's taken me and it's partly to do with, yes, the economic freedom that having had been so lucky to have directed Mamma Mia, the freedom that that's given me to be able to be more choosy and and spend more time sort of building you know, a project like Grenfell or the, the Trilogy Prison Project where, you know, quite a lot of the time was spent working in prison. You had to have space and money to resource yourself to do that. So to try to align your political passion entirely with your work on the stage, it'd probably been easier had I run a theatre and made that, you know, the mandate of the whole institution. I think I'm better placed or more useful trying to drive an agenda for the rehabilitative power of arts in prison, not just by talking about it, but by going and doing it. It's all a long way, isn't it, from from your original desire to be an actor, right? That was your original plan. Do you ever miss it? By the way, how was your Grusha in Caucasian Chalk Circle? I think the bit that I found most challenging was the singing. Oh, I yes. had to sing. I can still have bad waking nightmares rather than <laughs> of, of trying to master that vein of it aren't they a bit sort of you can get away with not really singing can't you Brecht, a bit sort, sprecht of. sort of I don't think I learnt the word sprecht there you go yes I mean it was quite an extraordinary choice actually for us but obviously you got a sense that it just wasn't temperamentally for you I think it was a combination of feeling inexpert both in terms of the craft and the, the emotional heft that you needed or the Teflon 
part of you. Yeah, I don't, I don't know quite what it is. It's some strange combination, isn't it? It's not really, I don't know if I don't sometimes think that it's actually just being sort of something, a part of you is sort of cauterized or kind of dead. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that was the act one of my chat with the wonderful Philip Lloyd. Please, please come back and join me for act two, because if you don't, well, you'll miss us talking about Philida in Russia and her dreams of a theatre commune, her relationship with Harriet Harold Walter. <laughs> That's her nickname for Harriet Walter. What Harriet Walter needs from her as a director, whether it's always easy to direct a friend chasing the all-female artistic utopia of her school, with her famous trilogy of all-female Shakespeare's, the era of theatre and the one-woman show that changed her life, leaving the theatre at the interval, and why there's no excuse for making dull theatre, and why she wouldn't direct the Tina Turner musical now, which she did do and was Tony nominated for, and why it's over for blokes like me. <laughs> Come and hear Act Two and my professional obituary. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Stay, 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 stay.